Hello, hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the Palace Way podcast. I'm Alex. Um, I'm joined again by Bruno. How are you doing, mate? Uh, it's a complicated mix of emotions, isn't it? But uh, on a personal level, I'm doing good. How about you? Yeah, not too bad. Like you say, I think I think everyone at the club is both excited for the future, but immediately concerned about Roy Hodgson, which I'll address in a moment. But I also want to welcome you back, Bobby Lanzi, to the show, our very own senior editor. How are you doing, Bobby? Yeah, not bad. Um, I mean, I think it's hard to be jumping for joy after today's situation. I mean, it's been a very draining and tiring day. I was speaking to you just before we started recording and said I actually ended up having a bit of a nap. It's just been a very long and tiring day. Likewise, I was saying, I think just following everything, the pace of it, all these sort of emotions, the, the, the roller coaster that fans have been through today has been a bit crazy. Um, speaking of today, just for the benefit of listeners, we're recording on the Thursday, the 15th at 5pm. Um, obviously, the situation regarding the managers has taken a real grip of what we're going to be discussing today. We had loads of notes prepared for the Chelsea match. We've kind of had to throw it out the window because obviously everything's been moving so quickly. Um, I think fans will be more than aware um, about what's happened, but for those that have missed it or those that want just a quick summary, obviously it looks as though that Roy Hodgson has now been sacked by the club. That's been confirmed by a whole multitude of sources. And it looks like that former Eintracht Frankfurt manager and of course Europa League winner, uh, Austrian manager, uh, Oliver Glasner looks set to take over at the club. Um, the 49-year-old is believed to have agreed a two-year deal with the option of a third. And we can probably expect some statement, probably by the time this pod goes out, although of again, that's why we're caveating this by mentioning when we're recording. Things are going to move quickly, everyone. It's something that comes as part and parcel of the game. And, you know, there's no guarantee that everything we say will still be in date, but we're going to do our best to try and cover all bases. Um, we'll get excited about Glasner later. We obviously want to do everything justice and, and really take a deep dive into what this means in this new era that he could herald in for the club. But we, of course, unfortunately have to discuss the fact that Roy Hodgson was taken ill during a training session today and was hospitalised. Um, we understand, as to a number of sources as well, that he's OK, he's fine, he's moving independently, he's uh, speaking to visitors. Um, he was accompanied by Chairman Steve Parrish to Mayday Hospital. And, you know, obviously everyone goes for an without saying, but, you know, everyone here at the pod, everyone associated with the Palace Way at a personal level, just really, really wish the best for Roy and his family. Um, it sounds like he's very much on the mend, on the up, and he'll be fine. But nonetheless, it's obviously quite harrowing. Um, it looks like the players witnessed everything, and it did happen on the training ground. So obviously, at the time, there would have been immediate concern, and it would have been pretty harrowing to watch. And you know, I think given that the the fans have this complicated but long-standing you know relationship with Roy, I think you know, obviously, everyone feels incredibly conflicted about today. Now, um, we have to draw a line under it and move on, unfortunately, because you know. That's the way the club's going. It seems like a firm decision has been made and we wanted to give that as much respect too. But again, one last time, just a massive, massive uh, show of solidarity with Roy and just wishing him all the best. Um, Bruno, I'll bring you in. Sorry, you have something to say. Uh, I have just seen uh, the son have said that Roy Hodgson was set to announce his departure from the club during the press conference before the um, incident took place. So that's, that's happened as we're recording. It's all quite on the fly today. Sort of brings a level of confirmation to the Oliver Glasner rumours, uh, but also kind of makes the situation almost more more tragic in a way that he wasn't able to say something himself before the information sort of went widespread. So, yeah, it's a really complicated situation for the club. Um, you know, you've got to sort of tread lightly and make sure they do the right thing in this case. Um, and it looks like Monday's game against Everton will be overseen by Paddy McCarthy and um, uh, Ray Lewington. Um, and there will be some kind of transition process after that. 
uh thankfully sounds like sounds like Roy's okay but uh yeah yeah, I've seen speculation in the Telegraph that the uh, the news from today might actually accelerate the appointment of Glasner. But I think certainly from a transitory perspective, I think it's both likely and makes sense that, as you say, Lewington and McCarthy will be taking the Everton game. And, um, you know, it's at least good to see that he's on the mend. And again, like you say, that gives some credence to to what was set to be announced. And um, it's sad, sad end, I think, for someone who is a man, as a as a student of the game, as someone who's been around for over 45 years in management. You know, it, it's... It's a real bittersweet end. You know, fans are obviously unhappy with the way that his brand of football has gone, the sort of way he's used youth, the sort of te- team lineups and that sort of thing. It's, I think we've addressed it to death, frankly, on this part. I think everyone knows what's gone wrong. There's a lot of blame at the board. There's a lot of strife around the club. And that's obviously accelerated why, you know, Glasner has been brought in. But, you know, it has to be said that his legacy is someone who is likely to probably leave football, if I'm being honest, at least from my opinion, you know, his legacy on the game would be phenomenal. I think, you know, whether it's into Milan, whether it's the whole host of national teams he's he's delivered success at, whether it's the league titles he won in Switzerland, whether it's the philosophy of football in Sweden that he's permanently changed. You know, these are things that are always going to be hallmarked with Roy Hodgson. And um, not, of course, we wouldn't be doing justice if we didn't mention the fact that he kept us up against the odds on numerous occasions with a squad that was... I think incredibly inadequate for Premier League level. He didn't just keep us up, though, did he? He kept us up for what was it, four seasons without any real struggle of going down. There was not a point in that period where you thought, "Oh God, Palace are going down." It was always very comfortable. It was it was easy, and with as you rightly put, an inadequate squad. I mean, that is an impressive legacy in itself. He he's done remarkable things for his football club, and I think over the past six months, that's kind of been lost a bit in the rhetoric and in the narrative, if you like. But I mean, the impact he's had on this football club um, will be everlasting. No, absolutely. I think you know we're unafraid on this pod to sort of jump on the pulse of fan opinion. I think we share some of the negativity. Things have got toxic, and I think again, it's easy to lose sight of what really matters during that. Um, so once again, I think, you know, a terrific legacy, both for football and for the club. But, you know, speaking of legacy, you know, as with all things, they come to an end. I think it's been a long time coming, but I think we finally have the news that a lot of fans for, you know, better or worse with the mood today, a lot of fans have been calling for for some time. So, I mean, let's talk about Oli Glasner. I think it, it's the massive elephant in the room. We're going to have to address it. He looks set, whether it's in a few days time, whether it's next week, whether it's tomorrow, whether it's a few hours, we don't really know for sure. But you know, we know he's certainly set to come into the club. I mean, Robbie, just talk to me briefly about the contract length. Two years with the option of a third. I mean, is this a sign of a real long-term project for the first time since Vieira? Is that viable? And is that enough time to really cement what he'd like at this club? Well, I mean, I think the contract length is, in a sense, kind of irrelevant. I just think all you have to do is look at the manager, look at the style of manager you're bringing in to know whether it's a long-term project or not. And he's certainly a manager who's in for a project will get down to the nitty gritty, will, is unafraid to say things how they are, is unafraid unafraid to change things up. And I think it's a really ambitious appointment from Palace. You know, you've, you've brought in a man who won the Europa League at Frankfurt. It's an astonishing appointment. I almost have to pinch myself a bit because he feels like someone whose calibre and stock is much higher than us and where we are at the moment. I think he's someone who had to take some time away from football just to rest and recuperate, which is totally understandable. He now seems ready and, and incredibly keen to get stuck in with Palace. And there's obviously talk with a long-term project that's been sold to him. I mean, obviously, Ducky Freeman and John Texter seem like the most involved in terms of disappointment. And- I don't think... I just want to address that one, actually. Um, although Texter wants... Um, 
Glasner, although he would probably be his first choice at the moment. I don't think uh, Texter has played a part in this at all. It's um, The second figure is someone else important within the club, but it's certainly not John Texter. Right. No, no, it's a good clarification because obviously we haven't really, and whether it's you on, on your own socials or us at the Palace where we haven't really specified exactly who, and I think it's quite hard to tell in the media beyond Dougie who else has spoken to him. But nonetheless, I think the signs that he will be appointed is obviously a sign of approval internally. I think it would be you know, pretty self-evident that Steve Parrish would have at least signed off or, or been involved in some capacity. We don't know for sure, but I think it's pretty, pretty fair to say that he's not going to be appointing a manager without his approval. So um, I think that's a fair given. Um, but anyway, from a tactical perspective, and I'll, I'll bring you in on this, Bruno, you know, I think Glasner has a pretty hallmark 3-4-3 system that he's used wherever he's gone. Um, it relies on a lot of solidity off the ball, but then in transition, committing a huge number of men forward beyond the uh, beyond the back three. Um, wing backs are crucial. We were saying before we started recording that I think Tyreek Mitchell and uh, Daniel Munoz are particularly well suited as um, former gets more offensive and the latter is certainly, as we've talked about before, you know, more than up to the challenge of being an attacking fullback for the modern era. You know, I think though they're going to be essential and with good injury records as well. I think that would be really useful for us. We've talked about the potential maybe of Jeff Schlupp as a left wing back, potentially saving the club money as well as maybe having a kind of renaissance in his form. Um, Ahamada is someone I'd like to get your thoughts on in particular because again I think he's a forgotten man so just to go back a bit Bruno two things I mean what do you make of his tactics and his approach do you think it's inspiring do you think it's negative what do you make of it and secondly who do you think could benefit most from the change of tactical direction from Oliver Glasner well you know he's definitely a forward-thinking manager a very aggressive manager and that's um, the style of play that's being reinforced by his choice of assistant manager um, who is someone that plays a similar style of aggressive and attacking football. Uh, in terms of the players in our squad, I think Tyrick Mitchell is someone that it could go two ways for. You know, it could be positive or negative uh, because going by a traditional Glasner um, sort of formation, like you were saying, there isn't really a position that's natural for, for Tyrick Mitchell. Uh, however, it's possible we could see him as a left centre-back due to injuries this season. Although I don't think uh, Glasner will necessarily go straight in for that formational change at this point. Um, Long-term, Mitchell could fit into either of those two roles on that left-hand side, but it's more likely we'll end up signing someone who can do that if we go down that um, uh, tactical route. I don't think Jeff Schlapp would be a long-term option there, but he could definitely provide, um, you know, um, he could be a substitution for Tyrick Mitchell, which is something that would probably benefit our squad at the moment. Squad at the moment, uh, as Ty hasn't actually had a someone on the bench ready to take his, his spot, at least not as a natural left back for some time. I think Hamada as a Bundesliga player, former Bundesliga player, could definitely benefit as well in a more sort of free flowing, right hand sided role, but potentially even for for Munoz at times. I don't think it would quite work in a midfield too for him, but there would be opportunities for him for sure. Yeah, I think um, I just want to pick up on what Bruno said, really, which was that whole style of play and formation will change. I don't think much will change at all, actually. I think you'll probably see him come in and try to play a bit more expansive, but I think the formation will probably stay in a back four. Um, Whether he wants to put another man in midfield or not, who knows? Um, But it's certainly just going to be reinvigorating the players to the back spell of the season. These last, what is it, 15 games now, 16 games, something like that? reinvigorating them, giving them new energy and just making them feel like they can go out there, play football and make mistakes and ultimately do whatever you can to get nine points. And I think the formational change will then come next season. 
No, no, that, it's totally valid. I think, you know, one of the main things that we want as fans is, you know, we're not expecting to win the Europa League like he did with Frankfurt. We're not expecting him to stay for 10 years, you know. All we really want is for that ceiling, of that, that glimmer of potential that the club has to be raised again. When we sat Vieira and brought in Roy, I think no one was sure what would really happen. We were immensely disappointed. It looked like incredible short-termism, but we were rightly proven wrong. You know, Eve Hodgson played some brilliant football. We picked up some tremendous results against the teams we should have been beating, and we ended up having a quite a comfortable end to the season. All the while with some brilliant results in the sunshine, particularly 5-1 leads, but plenty more results in there too. You know, good wins over Leicester to kickstart things and so on. You know, it was a happy time for the club. It was harmonious. But there was always an understanding, I think, from the fans and from Hodgson himself by his own admission at the time that, you know, the last game of the season would be his last at the club. So when that didn't happen, I think there was always this sense of real consternation, if not outright anger, that the club's ceiling had been flattened again. It had gone straight back down on the heads of fans. This idea that we would have a filler season, as we've talked about so many times on the pod, was such a hard sell to fans. And when it increasingly went wrong in terms of results, I think there was you know, an understandable error of toxicity. Now, did that go too far? Probably. I'll be the first to hold my hands up and say my anger's got the better of me on, on numerous occasions. I've perhaps taken my criticism a bit too far. I think a lot of us have. I think we're all collectively guilty of that. But what we do have to say is that fans are right to feel aggrieved by that decision. They were right to be annoyed at the ownership and to feel like they've been robbed of something. You know, it's a bit of a tongue-in-cheek phrase, but I've used it before that we've been turned on and left as a fan base, you know. And I think when you lose sight of what we had under that first season with Vieira, I think it's very, very hard for fans to then go back and pretend it never happened. That's why I'm so excited by this appointment, I think, ultimately. You know, this isn't someone who's going to transform things overnight or, you know, have all the time in the world to implement the style of play. You know, he'll have to hit the ground running, but, you know, we won't expect things to happen immediately. But what we do have is someone we can invest in again. We have a style of football that looks progressive. It looks tactically intelligent. It looks in touch with, you know, a more, more, a more intelligent way of playing the game. It looks more adept and suited to the difficulties of the Premier League. It looks suited to some of the but nuances the, in our the squad. The pressure is on the club. Yeah, the, the pressure is. is on the club for this because, all right, this this season now, it's just get the three wins, four wins you need to stay up. But next season, they should Glasner change his style of play, as in, or sorry, implement his style of play, change, change in Palace's style of play. That's going to take investment. It's going to take clever recruitment. And that's exactly what they got wrong when Frank De Boer came into the club. So, you know, it, it's a very similar appointment in that sense where you're going to try and change your in, entire style of play. And the pressure is on Dougie Freeman and Steve Parrish to get this recruitment right. They're going to have a hell of a lot of money to spend in the summer because they're going to be two big outgoings. But it's them picking up the right players. And they've no, got to put some trust totally. in the manager, which I think they will, to say, right, I want this player, this player and this player, you go and get them for me. Uh, it's got to be that, otherwise it could be calamitous again. And you're then back in that same constant rotation. Completely. I mean, like you say, squad building is going to be phenomenal. I mean, you think about Vieira in that first season. Again, that was a window that went incredibly well. You know, we've reshaped our back line. We brought in numerous attacking players. You know, it felt like we'd really turned a corner. And for the most part, it worked. You know, certainly I think all of those signings have had bright spells, if not an entirely bright time at the club. Many of them have gone on to win international caps for England, for instance, and so on. You know, I think both personally for the players brought in and for the wider prospects of the club, I think everything went up. I think, you know, on paper... This is what probably the best squad we've ever had for years and years, and yet we're underperforming massively. I think again, that's again I, I, part see, of the I, I wouldn't agree with the best squad we've ever had. I'd agree with it's the best eleven we've ever had, but squad depth is not there. True. 
the squad depth has never been there. There's, I mean, I was chatting to someone about it the other day and they said, oh yeah, we've got loads of players in midfield. And I categorically disagreed with that because if you think about it, they didn't bring any midfielders in in the summer um, and they lost their club captain and vice captain in Luca and James MacArthur. So you lost leaders from the squad and you lost bodies from the squad. So it's a good 11. It's maybe even a good 15, but it's not a good 25. It's a very, very astute point. No, no. And to be fair, I mean, it's going to sound like I'm backtracking massively, but I think you make a very solid point there. I think there's phenomenal talent, but I think in terms of mentality and some of the other things off the pitch that maybe we've lost, I think that's not been replaced. And again, there are still a few key holes in the squad. Now, arguably every squad in the Premier League bar, a few will have those gaps, but, you know, it is something that we'll have to address, you know, in the future, definitely. Yeah, but the, the problem comes is when the club have identified the gaps and tried to sort the gaps out and then fouled because they've left it too late. Mm. And, and that's where the problems are. It happened in January. It happened in the summer. Um, in that squad, if they had a winger, a versatile player in there and maybe another left back, Hodgson wouldn't be getting the sack now. They'd be safe already. So it's it's a real difficult situation. And, and I, I do feel for Hodgson in the sense that every period he spent at the club, he was never backed by the club. And he had to do a bloody hard job and he did it very well. No, very, very true. Bruno, I want to bring you in on here because something we were discussing again before we were recording was exactly how certain players would fit into this kind of 3-4-3 in, in defence system. Again, I've mentioned in possession that you normally get one of the holding midfielders and obviously a number of wide players pushing up the pitch. You know, the width comes from the fullbacks. You have these kind of two turns that are kind of like half-wingers that will go in behind the striker, look to provide different angles to cut back. And, you know, I think the likes of Eduard and Matata would be getting brilliant service if they do end up staying. So, you know, that's exciting. But let's go back to someone like Chris Richards, who is used to a back three at Hoffenheim and adjusts to German football. He's just one example of one of the players that we could pick out and say, you know, this guy could really benefit here. I mean, who else would you be looking at in the squad in terms of our best 11 and saying, right, you know, Glasner could really take you to the next level, if you pardon the phrase? Well, I'll start by saying that we are lucky to have a player like Chris Richards, a versatile player in our squad, um, considering the managerial turmoil that we now find ourselves having. Um, I'd say Adam Watson will probably really benefit because he's used to playing in a midfield too. And in such a two, in that formation, should Glasner play it, um, he'd be able to be more free and do more long distance passing as is one of his best attributes um, to to the fullbacks bombing or wingbacks rather bombing forward or uh, inside forwards once we have uh, Elise and Eze back that will be especially useful in the meantime it'll be IU and um, uh, Franca most likely uh, one thing I do want to touch on though is the Glasner appointment is a little bit strange for us. Now, I really do rate him as a manager, uh, and I think he could, in the long run, be a very good appointment for us. But, you know, we did meet with him last summer. Um, that's been reported. Um, and we chose not to go ahead and appoint him at the time. And now, eight months later, the Hodgson situation has backfired through a mix of injuries and, um, you know, players and so on and so forth. But... What is it? I just want to raise the question. What does it say about um, the club's strategic thinking uh, uh, if we are going back on that initial decision? Because we chose to wait for a better option, and now we're going with, you know, the third choice or fourth choice of the so-called better options we've been going for with Lopetegui, McKenna, Cooper, all discussed by the media as well. That's just uh, something I want to raise. Yeah, absolutely, Bobby. You have something to say. We'll bring you in here. Yeah, I wanted to just pick up on Wharton quickly. I know we said we weren't going to really go into the game against Chelsea, but I think 
he was phenomenal in that game. I do think we kind of need to address that because, as I say, I think he will flourish under Glasner. I think he's going to be brilliant. But I just, even under Hodgson in that game against Chelsea, I think he was by far the best player in red and blue out on the pitch. He was just absolutely incredible. Defensively, yeah. going forward, it was just perfect. It, it was a, he looked like a 19-year-old with 27 years of experience. You know, it was just, it was just remarkable. It was, it was just so, so good. It, it was better than any other midfield player on the pitch. Yeah, I think there's big things to come from him. He's only just turned 20 and topped a number of key statistics for any player on the pitch in terms of, you know, progressive passing, tackles one, interceptions, you name it. He was all over the place in the best possible way. I realise that makes it sound like he was sloppy somehow when I say all over the place. No, much the opposite. No, yeah, no, he, he just covered every area of the pitch. He, he was everywhere. I mean, he didn't deserve to be on the losing side against Chelsea. Absolutely not. I don't think many of them deserve to be on the losing side, to be honest. No, no, we'll park that for now because we do want to address Chelsea a little bit later because as we've said, you know, we're not out the woods yet. We can talk about the top level, we can talk about the strategy, but at the end of the day, we have a run of games to save us from relegation. That's the bottom line. There is no long-term plan if we get relegated. It's going to be so, so hard to bounce back from. So we will address that later. But, um, you know, just going back to Glasner and the midfield pivot, I mean, that's obviously a key part of the system. You know, he only really tends to play with an out-and-out midfield too. I think when you look at the likes of Watson and Decore, I think they're probably the best fit to go into that mould. I think Lerma and Hughes are probably more, as quality as they are, I think they're more rotational, particularly the latter. But I mean, I want to talk specifically about the midfielders. I mean, Bruno, I'll bring you in on here. When Decore is fit, how do you see him fitting in? Because we, we're tending to see him as more in a defensive role, whereas I think simply by necessity of a two-man pivot, I know you have support from the fullbacks, but ultimately you're going to need someone like Decore to kind of do everything. And I think him and Water is probably the more natural fit. Would you go along with that? Yeah, I'd agree with that. If um, and that's going to be the question we keep coming back to. If Glasner chooses um, to to go for his favoured sort of three, it's a three four three, but with two two midfielders. If he goes for that formation, then yeah, I'd say Decore's every man ability, right, in terms of defensive, especially, but also the fact he's strong on the ball, not necessarily going forward like Lerma, but that would make him a natural choice alongside a player like Adam Walton, who's a bit more expansive. Um, and a bit more of a under the press turn player. Tra- I, I I'd call him a transition player. Wharton. I feel like he's the player that can receive a pass from the centre backs, turn away from someone pressing him, and spread the ball out wide to these wing back players and these wingers that we're that we're talking yeah, about. Yeah, you're right. Because Wharton, I was talking to someone about this the other day. Wharton and Ducore are very very different players. Yeah. And, and although Wharton is playing that Ducore role at the minute because there is no one else there. Wharton is actually Lerma, if you like. He's that kind of player. He's the one who plays just in front of the core, right? alongside him in the pivot. Yeah, you're you're spot on. I think. But then, um... but then, what happens to Lerma, right? That that's the question you ask because he has been fantastic, and you don't want him to become surplus requirements because he's been once again one of our most consistent performers this season. So that's an interesting one um, for next season, looking ahead. One thing I want to bring up with Glasner, and it's just a bit about his winning mentality, because I think there's two real flashpoints in his career that we want to discuss. I mean, one is against all odds securing a fourth place finish with Wolfsburg, only for the team to then be in a relegation battle after he left. And of course, the Europa League victory over Rangers. Um, You know, I think to have a proven record of silverware and, and, you know, bringing a team up beyond the average and really managing to take them to new heights is something that fans have been craving, as we've discussed before. You know, we don't expect to get there necessarily. I don't think we were going to be having the clouds about it. We want the potential. We want that ceiling to be higher. We want the idea that the style of football he plays and the strategic stuff he does could get you there if it all falls into place and if results start to go your way. 
does this proven track record of success increase pressure on him? Does it maybe toy with fan expectations or do you think we're a more level-headed bunch than that? I mean, Bruno, I'll bring you in on that. Well, there's definitely pressure on him, right? Because uh, he has that track record. You're right. You know, I think fans will have higher expectations for him. But I don't think those expectations will really set in until next season. I think after the time we spent with Roy and the learning curve of, of what happened with Vieira, our fans are going to be very understanding of how the season pans out. You know, he's kind of getting a complete baptism of fire uh, in terms of just getting thrown in with a squad that is down to its bare bones, had a lack of depth before the injury crisis anyway. Um not to mention all those injured players are our best players, right? And, you know, Palace fans are generally very understanding. You know, we put up and have put up with a lot of um, tough times. And I think Glasner will not see much frustration fan side between now and the end of the season. And, you know, provided we do stay up, I think this season from now on would be considered a success. There are a lot of mistakes and misgivings about the season as a whole, but between now and the end of the season, the goal is to stay up. And if he achieves that, then he's got a summer to work with, a budget to work with, and most importantly, time to work with to implement his ideas and find success playing football the Glasner way. Glasner way, the Palace way. Right, nice, nice little segue there. Um, we want to talk a bit about the Palace way because it is a bit of a joke, the name, obviously. It's kind of ironic. We use it that way at times on the pod. But when we talk about the Palace way, I think it's kind of this very subtle nod to a strong identity as a club, to attacking-based football, to flair players, to celebrating homegrown talent, local talent, South London talent. You know, Abereze is probably the, the the flagship man at the moment for that. Previously, you know, you've got Zaha. You know, it's always been something that's been imbued in the club. And his emphasis on possession-based football, high-pressing, incredibly tri like quick transitions to the point where even, you know, Xavi at Barcelona mentioned just how intense it was and how it was unlike anything he'd witnessed. You know, this is a man who has a record of revolutionising clubs. And I think there is a pressure that comes with that, yes, but it surely answers, you know, exactly what fans have been crying out for. And Bobby, where do you expect to see things going? Do you think this is something that will happen overnight? I mean, it sounds like a pretty obvious answer, but I think there'll be things that will probably, you know, come into effect quickly and things that won't. But I mean, what exactly do you expect to see, say, from the get-go? And what do you think will take the longest amount of time to implement at Crystal Palace? It's quite an interesting question, actually. I'm not sure I totally have the answer. Um, I think certainly the one thing you will see at first is spirit of the squad. I think you will see that. I think you will see the younger players playing with a hell of a lot more freedom. So I think that's going to be the first thing you try and integrate. Uh, the second thing is just playing with a bit more attacking intent, playing with a bit more pace on the attack. I think that's going to be something you try and implement straight away. Um, I think there might be more of a focal point on set pieces. Um, it certainly feels like something they haven't trained on much um, if you watch them. Um, so I think it'll be trying to fix that problem because if you fix that problem, it fixes a hell of a lot of problems where Palace concede and don't find goals. And I think the the longer term things is your shape, your complete style of play. Um, and I think that's probably something we'll be looking at for next season, really. No, definitely. Bruno, um, just to bring you in on that. I mean, obviously, we've talked a bit about the lack of goals throughout the season. We talked about set pieces and that is a key problem. You know, I think Bobby made some very good points there. But one of the things Glasner is also quite strong on, or at least certainly at Wolfsburg was strong at, was defensive solidity. Obviously, we've mentioned that there's a third centre-back. Now, it's not deployed in a way that's negative, like maybe, say, 
Steve Bruce at Newcastle for, was deliberately negative. You know, he's not adding a defender for the sake of it. It's designed to free up the fullbacks, and that's ultimately, you know, as I've mentioned earlier, such an important part of, you know, the system that we could expect to play under Glasner. So, Bruno, just to bring you in on that, from a defensive standpoint, how do you expect the team to sort of to tighten up? How do you expect things to change in that department? I don't know if it necessarily will. Um, but I think the defence could be where we see the beginnings of the Glasner revolution at Crystal Palace this season, in that I think the responsible thing at this stage in the season with the position we're in would be to retain a variation of a 4-3-3 formation for this season. However, that would be in possession. Out of possession, Glasner will have a lot more leeway um, in how our back four could become a back three with Mitchell tucking in and Munoz pushing forward, right? I don't think we're going to lose defensive stability doing that. Um, I think we've got very high quality defenders uh, and managers haven't really struggled keeping the goals from going in with our squad recently, Vieira and Hodgson. The issues have been set pieces, which we will be working on going forward because that's an identifiable issue and actually scoring goals as a team. And one of the ways that Glasgow will think we can do that is more positional fluidity uh, when we're in possession. Um, and that can stem, like I said, from the defensive line. With Mitchell pushing in, Munoz moving forward, which is where we can capitalise on his assets, bring Elise and Eze back into that squad, all of a sudden it gets a lot more exciting. Warden, as that transition player like Bobby and I were talking about earlier, Lerma can bring a fantastic box-to-box aspect to our midfield as well, but it will probably be chained up a bit more this season uh, solely because of the um, injuries that we have with the Corey. But I think our defense won't get harmed or necessarily improve massively, but I think allowing some defenders to capitalize on their best attributes, such as Mitchell defensively and Munoz going forward, will see us become more of a threat, even in the absence of Elise and Eze. And I think that's why Glasner could be very good for us this season. Absolutely. I think there's so much potential there, so much that could change. But, you know, I think, as we've said before, there has to be a temperament of expectation here. Some things will change quite quickly, others won't. I think that's really something I want to reiterate, because I think we almost have a collective responsibility as fans to check our expectations on that. And, you know, he has a reputation for kind of direct and disciplined play and an overall way of setting up his teams. And yet in actual transition, actually being quite fluid in the shape and the formation, I think that's something that's really interesting. I think to have that emphasis on, you know, very quick transitions and kind of changing back into different shapes is really useful. But, you know, I think the idea that we're even talking about this is something that we've missed for a long, long time. So I think some of this different, these different ideas on pressing and these different philosophies on on defending as a team, I think is going to be really interesting to see in terms of how that plays out. And we've talked a lot about Glasner, you know, on the pitch, and we talked a bit just briefly on his history, you know, fourth with Wolfsburg, winning trophies and so on. But I want to talk a bit about upstairs as well. Um, because there's something to be said for the manner in which he's left both of those clubs. Now, it seems like he wasn't ready to take over this season after having fancied a break. Totally get it. It's the same with Steve Cooper and his reluctance to maybe take a job quickly, among other factors. Um, but both at Wolfsburg and Frankfurt, Glasner was publicly critical of the transfer policies of those clubs and what he perceived as some of the uh, the inaction or the lack of flexibility in the transfer market in a way that he would have liked. You know, He's someone who, at least from the outside looking in, is quite demanding in terms of wanting to be backed in terms of having influence over transfer strategy, picking targets and so on. Not entirely unusual, but it's definitely something to factor in. So, Bobby, I'll bring you in on this first. I mean, 
can you see this all blowing up? Can you see him and Parrish getting along? Can you see maybe a lack of funds without too many sales being an issue? Can you see sales themselves being an issue? I mean, there's so much to unpack there, but just to just to wind it back, I mean, can you see Glasner falling out maybe in a couple of years, if not sooner, with the board? That's a really difficult question to answer. Um because no, you know, we don't know what's going to happen in the future. It's it's impossible to know. Um, but I think sales in in the sense of the word won't be an issue um, because I think there will be an understanding. And I think Freeman and the other member of the Palace hierarchy would have been hammering that in in talks that they're going to sell Anderson and another in the summer um, to fund what you want to fund, creating an identity. So I don't think you'll have that problem. Um, there may become a point where there is a uh, a bit of friction between um, Glasner and the board because you know um, Glasner is a character who is very outspoken he will say whatever he wants he's not afraid to speak his mind and um, there could be clashes there but there's no point preempting something like that and I think buying players as, as long as the board listen to him and they invest that money from the sales sensibly I, I think they'll be all right Brilliant. I'll just bring you in on that. Um, you know, can you see any kind of potential fractures down the line? I think Bobby makes a good point there. Maybe it was a provocative question to ask on the spot because, you know, I'm not a fortune teller. You're not fortune tellers. We don't know exactly what's going to happen. But, you know, there's at least a pattern here. So, I mean, what do you make of it? Uh, I think we need a strong personality. Um, you know, I felt like Vieira was sometimes unafraid to call out players that weren't doing so great. And whilst you want a manager that supports the players, sometimes you also want someone who says how it is. You want someone who can strike that balance. And, you know, Roy Hodgson's press conferences have been a notorious downfall of, of his season so far. So I think Lesnar can maybe cut a figure that represents both what the fans want, what the players need and what the board might want out of a manager. I think he could be the right player, the right manager, sorry for that. Um, I think he provides um, the same quality that I said in the last podcast I wanted from the next Palace manager. You know, someone with attitude you know a Lopetegui a Mourinho he's not quite on that level in terms of arrogance but I think he um won't be an issue in our dressing room necessarily I think it could be a positive thing sort of instilling that winner's mindset that saw him have so much success in in Germany one thing I, I would say is um it's quite a strong cultural change for the players right going from sort of a softly spoken old generation English English manager to a younger sort of aggressive forward thinking manager from Austria. There just are natural inherent differences in the manner uh, that instructions will be given. So that'll be difficult for the players, but you know, they are professional footballers. They'll be used to this change. Many of them have played in the Bundesliga before under such a coach, look at Matessa, Richards, Ahamada. So yeah, I, I think it's a good thing uh, for the club. Yeah, I'd love to be a fly on the wall in the dressing room when some of these talks are happening because, you know, we've conceded in the, uh, you know, the first, the second, the 46th, the 47th minutes of games, you know. And I'm not saying that, you know, it's just down to Roy, it's just down to the team talks, but, you know, there has been a pattern here at least and questions have been raised over the focus of the team coming back into games, coming back out, you know, starting games and so on. So, you know, I do wonder if a more intense style might actually get the best out of some of these players because, there's definitely a sort of uh, an issue of morale of 
questioning where we go as a squad from him. Really interested to see how those teams talk to go and whether the squad really is motivated by him. And coincidentally, communication isn't expected to be a huge issue. It's been widely reported that although he's not managed in England, his English is impeccable. So, you know, when you've even the likes of Daniel Munoz, who are new to the club, new to England, don't necessarily speak the language, you know, he's had his training sessions in uh, Yankee English. So, you know, I think right down from the new arrivals through to the veterans of the squad who have seen it all with this club, you know, there's going to be, I think, a strong understanding with the management in terms of the, the new ideas that Glasgow wants to communicate and what he wants to get across. So, yeah, really interested to see how things go from there. Um, we did just touch upon the uh, concession of games, but before we just do uh, and do look at recent results, there is one thing I want to raise in terms of, um, you know, transfers. I know we had this discussion earlier, but I want to just bring back one question to you both, really. Um, more of a kind of one, not one, but kind of one phrase answer. Um, which position do you think under Glasner and led by Glasner, I'm going to say, in the next window, you would see strengthened? I mean, Bruno, what, what do you think will be the first position that will strengthen? Um, well, it obviously will depend on the departures that happen in the summer, but let's assume it's um, the most obvious ones in Anderson and Elise. Uh, I think you'll see us sign multiple forwards, um, people capable of playing both out wide and centrally, because that would make sense both for our squad and the positions um, that he would require to be strengthened with the formation he typically uses. Um I think wing back would be the next one. You know, Warden Klein would not be capable uh playing <laughs> playing Glasner style of football. Uh, and Munoz will need a deputy. Um similarly, Tyreek Mitchell will need one. We'll need to sign multiple centre backs, probably, if Anderson leaves. Um we'd need a starter as well as more people to cover, as we'll have more centre backs starting if we play that three back. Um midfield remains to be seen, depends on how well Ozo can adapt to Glasner's style of play because he's a very capable footballer and if we end up with you know Hughes, Ozo, Wharton, Decore, Lerma as a sort of five to rotate between two positions plus a Hamada in there as well I'm not particularly bothered about that midfield I think that's strong enough for us I don't think the club would would need to invest there so yeah I'd say defense and wing backs would be a key area wingers would be a key area for his style and we've needed to sign a strong um goal scoring striker for you know god knows how long we've tried many times it hasn't quite panned out that way but you know i think this summer we'll probably see a departure of one of the strikers as well and that will allow us to move for one or two um strikers alternatively we'll go for someone that can fill multiple positions as a backup to one main striker just because of the way glasner's typical front line would be so versatile with three more narrow players as the front three absolutely i mean I wanted to just go back a little bit on David Ozo um, and make a wider point about youth here. Um, I wasn't, when I was doing my research, initially sure about, um, you know, whether he would be a youth-orientated coach. And, you know, I want to give a big bit of praise to Roy Hodgson here. He's hard to impress in terms of youth, but he really seems to have put a decent degree of faith in, in David Ozo. It's a shame he never started him, but, you know, I think for him to even catch the eye and for him to really back him in the press when he has at times been critical of young players... Is something good to see. He's been a real bright spark in a very dark time to be a house fan and while we're in this relegation scrap. So David Ozo giving a lot of people hope here, but I just wanted to just give some data here about, um, not data, I should say, just some names I should say about, um, you know, the players that he's given debuts to. These aren't necessarily full professional senior debuts, but these are debuts in the Bundesliga, certainly, um, and the types of talent that he's developed. So just some examples, Paxson Harrison, you know, brother of uh, brother of Brendan, 
Um, Bartosz Bialak from uh, from Wolfsburg, Lucas Lemecha, Maxence Lacroix, Omar Mamouche, Jasper Lindstrom, uh, Junior, Junior Dina Mbembe from Paris Saint-Germain, Jens Petterhaug, Xavier Schlager. I mean, the list could go on. You know, not all of these are, you know, players getting their senior debut, but these are all players that made their debut age 21 or less under a glass of the team. Um, and I think that's incredibly encouraging. I mean, you know, there are a few more in terms of, you know, Randall Kalamuani, Lucas Pellegrini that have maybe developed a bit more, but, you know, still at 23, we're coming into a new system at Frankfurt and managed to make their marks. So, you know, there's some really interesting prospects there that have come through, names that are recognised all over the world now in some cases. So, you know, absolutely fascinating to see that his record of development has been pretty encouraging there. And um, I've kind of gone on a bit there about debutants, but Bobby, I want to bring it back to you. Um, looking specifically at David Ozo and maybe Raksaki and other players in the academy, um, he's not someone who's necessarily orientated towards um, youth academies in the extreme, but he's someone who has got a good record of developing youth. So, do you think this is a good signing ultimately for our academy prospects that we're so fond of here at Palace Way? Yeah, I mean, any manager that's got that kind of record of putting players under 21 into um giving them their debuts, if you like, um, is a good is a good um acquisition. I think hopefully David should flourish. I, I, he's a phenomenal footballer already. Um I saw a tweet when we saw Morton actually to say words to the effect of uh, if David Ozo was playing in the Championship week in, week out, is that not just Adam Walton? Which I thought was quite interesting. I think certainly talent and ability-wise, they're quite similar, but obviously Walton's just got that um, experience over David. Um, even someone like Franca is, uh, should start to flourish um, under the new manager. I'd, hopefully, it, you know, we should start to see that natural progression from youth to senior team that, that we've struggled to see in recent years because... What you've had a couple of fullbacks come through, but apart from that, not much really. And as yeah. well, the, the whole category one thing, right? You're not actually seeing the players who have come through a category one academy. You're seeing the players. So David Oza, he he wasn't a part of a category one academy, but the, the academy's been category one for two years. So by the time the players start coming all the way through, so the current crop of 18s and below that, once they get to 23s and senior teams, you are talking about the best of the best South London talent. Absolutely. I think it's really encouraging. And I think, you know, there's always going to be a base for you for this club. I think we've invested such a great deal of money that, you know, one thing I wanted to add on that is that from a strategic perspective, you know, obviously he's had this conversation with Ducky Freeman about taking over and about a long-term project. And, you know, it would be silly to assume that the academy wouldn't have come up in that conversation. It's obviously a core part of the club's philosophy and how it sees its, its development going. And um, I think to pretend that's not going to be utilised in some way would be a bit of a bit of a non-starter, really, considering that we're already seeing more talent breaking through into the first team. So certainly in the short term, the season, it could help. Well, it's revenue making through stream as well, isn't it? Because any academy player that is OK, but not good enough to play for you, you're going to end up selling. So if you look at Mao up in Scotland next season, you'll you're probably sell him. Um, all right, you might get a million pounds for him. But the academy costs... Six million pound a year to run, but that doesn't go on your profit and sustainability rules because, or it doesn't affect that because those, uh, that's taken off of it. But your sales do go on it, so you know it's an, an extra million pound of sustainability there a year, that just from one sale. And by the time we're two or three years down the line, you should be seeing four or five academy sales a year, and it's pure profit. And any one player you've got through, you've essentially got them through for free. Mm. No, no, totally. It makes sense both financially and from a sporting sense in terms of opportunity costs to use there. I think, you know, time will only tell if that's the case, but I think there's promising signs there. So really interested to see what happens there. 
And we've done a lot of talking about Glasner. We've done a lot of talking about, you know, how things could change on the pitch, about what it means for the club and, and why we should be excited about a new kind of, a new era coming in at this sort of last part of the season and beyond. But, you know, I think we do have to keep it in the here and now and just realise that, you know, let's not forget we're still in the middle of a relegation scrap. We've got a huge game on Monday night against Everton in what will be a probably a transition game for the club in terms of regime. You know, we've got games against Burnley coming up, which I would expect Lesnar to be in for. That's obviously going to be hugely important in terms of needing to get a win there. Um, you know, we've got big games and a huge run-in coming up that will determine whether this project's feasible or not. And I don't think that's dramatic to say. Are we the most likely to go down? Probably not. But we've had this conversation before. It's definitely not impossible. So, you know, in terms of what's gone wrong on the pitch, that's obviously what's got Roy sacked. We're aware of it. But just talk us through exactly what needs to change as a priority. Bobby, I'll leave that to you. I think it's got to be more of a focus on attack, to be honest. Um, I, I think um, against Chelsea in the first half, that was certainly employed, but in the second half, it kind of went missing again. So what you're looking for is a consistent 90-minute performance playing a style of football that will get fans excited, that will is likely to get you results as well, because that's the crucial thing. So, yeah, I, I think certainly more an emphasis on attack. Um, I think probably France are from the off, um, but then again, if he's not in charge of Everton on Monday night, you would expect uh go out on a whim and say that Eze might be back for the Burnley game. So maybe you've got your attacking threat back there. So it, as I say, it, it's more just reiterating that attacking threat to the players because once you've got an attacking threat, I think defending becomes a hell of a lot easier because I think the problem, why we've got so many defensive problems this year is because there is no attack, there's no outball. So everything you clear just comes straight back on you anyway and there's no relief, there's no let off. So it's sorting those attacking problems. It's got to be the priority and it's got to be the emphasis going into his first game, whether that's against Everton or Burnley. Um. Yeah, honestly, I do. Uh, I think right now it becomes about when our players are returning from their respective injuries and you know i think Eze and mark gay will be back first then there'll be a break uh before we can see elise playing towards the end of the season we may even get you know a shep to appearance off the bench um once you may doubt it but you know going by the traditional timeline of of achilles injuries it's not Agreed. Fair enough. But at the same time, look at what we did with Macca at the end of last season. I think it'd be a nice note to end on if he's fit. So only in the case in which Sheikh Dufour is fit, um, obviously it'd be great to see him. Um, similarly, there are loads of impressive young players currently coming through our academy that you know could have a chance to make a name for themselves um, under Glasner. Like the policy under Roy and under Vieira has been sort of letting young players in batches and spells and periods step across um, from the academy to the first team and train um, with the the primary squad uh, under, you know, a professional manager and with professional players. Um, you know, players such as Hindola Mustafa, who recently signed his first pro contract. Jesse Derry has been doing it as well in the 18s. Asha Agbenone at times and, you know, more frequently uh, Jack Wells-Morrison and David Ozo before he made his debut. So there are many players in and around the first team squad that Glasner will be made aware of, that will train, that will have a chance to impress. Franco Ume is another um, that I think could make his debut before the end of the season. So, 
yeah, I mean, even in the places where there are currently holes, there is an entire academy of players waiting to fill them. Right? We've got a huge, um, like, I'm trying to think of the right word for this, like a untapped... <laughs> I, I'm, I'm failing to grasp the metaphor, but like... Um... Yeah. Yeah, exactly. There, There is so much here with South London, with the Category 1 Academy, that's just about to happen. And I know it's felt for so long like it's been about to happen, but that's partly because it gets overhyped the first moment of investment rather than the moment of fruition, right? Yeah. I say Academy investment to come to fruition takes at least five years. And, and, and probably longer, to be honest with you. It's probably more like eight years to 10 years. Yeah, definitely. So it is something that we'll have to keep an eye on, but I think it'll be quite a long time before we really start to see more Wan-Bissakas, Zaha's, you know, it breaking through um, and, and really holding down a first-team spot. Really, really interesting to see what happens there. Just before we wrap up, I do want to do Chelsea a bit of justice because, you know, originally we planned the pod all around that. We we're going to go, Lerma, what a hit, son, you beautiful man, blah, blah, blah talk about Conor Gallagher, et cetera, et cetera. Like it, it was going to, there was going to be a lot to unpack, but I think we'll just, we've just kind of had to, for obvious reasons, to shove it to the end. And, you know, just looking at that Chelsea game, I think people were aware of the unwanted sort of 13 game record for both teams in terms of longest respective losing and beating streak for, uh, for Palace and Chelsea. But, you know, I still think there was this idea that, you know, we are desperately looking for points. Chelsea are kind of a bit flat, you know, maybe it was written in the stars that Gallagher was going to put up a few daggers like he did, but, at the end of the day, was there not a degree of optimism, Bobby, going into that game? Um, yeah, I think um, when we saw the lineup the night before the game, or actually I had it on Friday, but um, yeah, when, when everyone started to see that leaked lineup um, on Sunday um, and even Monday morning, I think there was a degree of optimism, there was a degree of excitement. Roy had changed it, Roy had finally changed it, Roy had put an emphasis on attack, and you certainly saw that in the first half, actually. I, I thought they played quite well. Um, and it was, you know, second half syndrome again. Um, it just seems to be the thing every uh, every time Palace get a lead, they do their best to throw it away in the second half. I, I don't actually think they were that bad. All right, they come out of the traps and conceded straight away. There were other factors at play, as we know, with a long stoppage, and, and that could have played a part, but I wouldn't want to speculate like that. But yeah, you conceded a stoppy goal, and I thought they got on with the job. I thought Chelsea created a lot but they never really got that clear shot away at goal. But you just felt that every time the ball bounced in the box, eventually it was going to fall to one of them. And you got into stoppage time and finally it did fall to one of them. And it was Conor Gallagher with the sucker punch who celebrated like he'd won the World Cup, um, which I took umbrage to actually, I must admit. I thought um, it was quite bizarre, him jumping in the stands and then laughing at the Palace fans and then coming out in the interview after and saying it's all love. I, I just thought that was a whole weird circumstance in itself. Um, and it was just, it was just a bit gutting if if you were a Palace fan, to be honest, because I I thought they were worthy of a point on Monday night. I think everyone did. I mean, thanks for talking us through that, Bobby, because I was going to ask a bit about what went wrong on the second half, but I think you've summarised it brilliantly. I think, you know, I think we just didn't cope with the change in their system, the the intensity, the speed into the passing got even better. It was really clever what Chelsea did. Actually, it was really clever. They brought on in Cuckoo. And they took off Madueke, who I actually thought had a good first half. I, I thought he was, I thought he looked okay going forward. I, I don't think he'd set the world on fire, but I thought he was one of their more creative outlets. But what they did was, is they um, then chucked Palmer out wide and they had Nkuku picking up gaps in the middle. And it meant that either Wharton, Chris Richards or Anderson was always locked up with him. 
So it just created so much more space around the pitch for the rest of their team to use, which Gallagher stepped up a bit, which Palmer, as I say, went out onto, onto the wing. And it just created so much more room for them to move the ball, so much room for them to get a shot away, so much more room for them to get across it. So it was really clever from Pochettino tactics-wise, and Palace just didn't react until it was too late. Definitely. I mean, it, it was a real shame to see. I think to collapse in the way we did feels a bit Groundhog Day for us. It's one of the reasons we're talking about this managerial change in the first place. And if we defended with such vigour and solidity and with players in better positions as we did in the first half, we probably wouldn't even be talking about Oliver Glasner for most of the time that we have. Um, Bruno, just some closing thoughts really from you on the Chelsea game. I mean, obviously, I think it taps on a lot of the issues in the first place as to why there was such fan toxicity and frustration with Roy Hodgson. But do you think there's a risk that these issues come and repeat themselves under Glasner until they're thrashed out? Or do you think it's something that will kind of dissipate quickly and, and it's something that comes more from the management rather than how the players respond on the pitch? I think the issues will dissipate with time uh, because they're kind of the product of injuries. Uh, which have played Roy Hodgson's time, as we've said, uh, and Glasner will have the um, opportunity to play a squad with, you know, our our best players in a better state, at least. Um, with that comes the ability to make better substitutions, and I think Glasner is a better manager at making progressive substitutions than Hodgson, and that will fix the conceding late and falling back and retreating and inviting pressure onto ourselves that has damaged our season and hurt our ability to get results and hold on to leads. So, yes, I think once those decisions start getting made um, of a higher quality and we have more players to aid that decision-making, I think the outcome of those decisions will improve. So that's one area of of our game that's flawed. Another one is individual errors, things like not tracking back. In the past, it's been maybe a poor pass that gives us straight a chance to an opposition. But in this case, it's been rather not doing something, rather than doing something obviously wrong. So, yeah, I think if Glasner can build a mindset um, that's more cohesive throughout the team, uh, and that, yet again, will get helped with injuries when you've got more players to make up a team, but if that gets achieved, I think you'll see more cohesion. As I said, that will lead to less errors or if we do make them more effective and frequent recovery as well. Definitely. I think there's so much to be said, and we could talk a lot more about that in some detail, but unfortunately we do have to close it there, guys. Bobby, I've seen in our in our little Zoom chat when we record, you've just France a time with uh, with great candor. I'm going to have to part that, but um, we'll definitely pick it up again. And I think France is someone who I'm really interested to see in terms of how his development pathway will go onto Glasner. I think he needs someone that's a bit more of a long-term solution in terms of the squad and management, you know, in, in order to see the best of him. So really interested to see where we go from there. So Bruno, thank you for an optimistic note. Um, you've got any closing uh, closing words to say before we go? Um, thank you for all of the brilliant hard work from Roy Hodgson, because the guy is a Palace fan through and through. He's been loyal to the club, been loyal to Parish, been loyal to the fans. And, you know, he is a legend of this club and uh, a legend of the game. And I'm, for one, looking forward to what Glasner and Texter and Parrish and the Palace team has planned or have planned um, with this new youth-based forward-thinking progressive expansive model that we seem to be gearing towards adopting. Yeah, no, brilliant. I mean, I really hope we can fulfil on some of that because 
it's good to see what feels like for the first time that ceiling being moved upwards. It feels like the board's at least somewhat unified in this decision making now. It seems like there's a philosophy that's back in place and probably with the highest caliber manager will ever have or not, maybe not will ever have, but have certainly had before. You know, I think De Boer came with a bit of a reputation when it was promising at Ajax and then obviously that's tanked. I think Vieira was a fairly new figure. You know, I think this is in terms of caliber, probably as good as we've had. So I'm really interested to see where we go. Um, Bobby, again, thank you very much for coming on. Do you have any closing thoughts to say? It's going to be an interesting couple of weeks. I think that's my closing thoughts. It's going to be it's going to be a ride again. It's, it's been a ride all season. It's just it's only going to get faster. Um, it's going to be a really interesting period at the football club, and I'm certainly looking forward to it. I'm certainly looking forward to writing about. It. I'm certainly looking forward to coming on here more talking about it. And it's just going to be an interesting, um, well, what two years now um, under Oliver Glasner. Let's hope it's more than two years. Let's, let's hope we have a honeymoon honeymoon period and the Palace way of doing trips to Prague on a Thursday night well well exactly Prague on a Thursday night do not even get me thinking about beers anyway um because Lord knows I need one Jesus tonight it's been crazy um like we've got to wrap it up here guys we thank you very much for listening um if there's one thing you can be sure about with the roller coaster that is Crystal Palace we will be there for it um thank you once again for your love and support if you can leave us a review please do so you can say whatever you like if you think we're terrible, tell us why we're terrible. We wanted to hear any and everything to help us improve. Um, but other than that, all that's left for me to say is a big thank you to you guys for listening and for all your love and support. Thank you to Bobby and Bruno and all the best to Roy Hodgson. And we obviously um, hope the recovery goes smoothly. Um, but you can be sure we'll be back in the next one to cover all the circusry and all the craziness that happens next. So thank you again for your support and we'll see you in the next one. Bye-bye.